This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction and infrastructure projects nationwide. And well, live, welcome to this week's Safer Than Your Average podcast. On the show this week, we've got Bruce Durham. Bruce's strapline on his LinkedIn is empowering happy people to get more right first time. And that's quite a big statement. Let's talk about that a little bit, Bruce. Do you want to come in and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, Blair, first of all, thank you very much for having me on your podcast. Uh, yeah, so about empowering people to get more right first time. That's what I try to do. That's what everybody who works alongside me tries to do when we work alongside organizations. It's the, it's the crux of human performance. If you help people to connect, if you help them understand their thoughts and feelings, and they're more in control of those thoughts and feelings, then there's some magic that happens there. You know, the foundation of all decisions, that inner voice, that inner critic that will force you or coerce you to turn left or turn right or take the shortcut or not take the shortcut. But also that inner critic that can be really unhelpful to your feelings, to your well-being, etc. That's that's where I get even now as I'm talking about it, I get some real joy from that. You know, helping people focus on that basic level of just being more aware and in control of their thoughts and feelings. Because ultimately, if you can do that, then there's magic happens everywhere: safety, performance, operational efficiencies. That you know, the whole bang. But what you've got at the core of that is a, is a person firing on all cylinders. So, yeah, I'm going to stick by my strap line, if that's all right with you. <laughs> Brilliant. I'm looking forward to this one, Bruce. So let's just go back to the beginning then. If you want to tell us a bit about your early life, where you grew up. Yeah, sure. So I grew up uh, in just north of uh, just north of Newcastle, right on, on the East Coast. Um, didn't really have anything, you know, extraordinary happen as a, as a child or anything, but in my childhood, that's where my obsession, if I can call it that, was how the brain works, psychology. Um, we didn't have any other sports other than football and boxing that was offered to us. And uh, to be fair, I wasn't really great at either of them. So when I would do that, I often found my crooks, my passion was to go to the library. And from a young kid, nine or ten years old, I had one of my neighbours who used to be the librarian. She used to let me come in because I was too young to get a library card. But I would go in there and I would read book upon book upon book about like wars or warriors or battles or, you know, um, like sort of psychology, little experiments that were going back there. And that's a trait that I still carry forward to this day. I mean, my office here, I've got absolutely shelves just full of books. And, you know, when I think when kids, when, when you look at kids, you say, oh, you know, can you see the character development? I think that was one of my, you know, that was actually one of my traits is to be able to, I like a bit of quiet, even though I can be quite gregarious when I'm interacting, that little bit of quiet, but I love losing myself in a book. I love learning. Um, so yeah, grew up in, in Newcastle, not very good at the football, even worse at the boxing, but loving reading books, exploring the minds, etc. But then where that come from, which is where I started to get into the actual psychology and the coaching, is that because I wasn't very good at boxing, <laughs> I started to say, okay, is there a different angle? Because I would go and I would basically get beat up in sparring. <laughs> I used to get beat up in sparring. Sometimes I could hold my own. I'm sort of, you know, maybe it's exaggerating this a little bit. But I thought, okay, how can I get out of the sparring sessions? You know, how can I actually still go to the boxing, do all the fitness, but just not get beat up? 
So it was, it was a self-preservation mechanism that I needed to come up with an option B. Uh, an option B. And what I did do is I convinced the head trainer to let me work alongside him, but by the time I was about 14, 15, to start doing some coaching work. Again, so I was simply going to a book, reading about this psychological technique or coaching technique, and then coming back into the boxing gym and then practicing it on the guys in there. And really, that's where my coaching background came from, A, because I had a real you know, enjoyment of exploring my own thoughts and learning about the brain and what makes us tick. But also that if I got good at it and the, and the guys really enjoyed it, and it was all men in that, you know, in that gym at that particular time, then it allowed me to deviate, to um, mitigate the, the, the sparring session so I could go home without getting beat up, um, which was, you know, a ticking on, on sort of both sides. Then when I started to more evolve my skills, that's where I ended up going to Newcastle College uh, on a nighttime course. And that's where I got my first psychological qualification. So it was a diploma in sports psychology. Uh, yep. Again, all about performance, goal setting, removing barriers, all this type of stuff. Um, so when I was 18 years old, I was looking, okay, what do I do now? So I had, I had taken business studies, biology, um, I had got my personal trainer certificate. I had got my diploma in sports psychology. Um, and then this was my real first lesson is I hadn't, <laughs> I hadn't really researched enough um, about how much personal trainers didn't get paid. I just, had the, <laughs> I, just, I just had this image, I was going to make millions. Yeah, I was absolutely yeah. going to make millions. And uh, when I actually done all the training, done all the qualification, I was like, I can't live on that. Um, so I ended up, you know, pottering around for a little bit. Uh, and at the age of, of 20, I ended up applying for the REF. Because where I come from in Northumberland, unless yeah. you're really involved in an industry that involves fish or sheep, um, they were the sort of two biggest <laughs> employers at the time, you know. There wasn't much of a career, and that's what I was looking for. I was always driven. I was always inquisitive. I always wanted to be like the best version of me. I was always looking for that something else. Um, and there just wasn't that available at the time. So I ended up one day being in Newcastle, um, being the sort of social type of guy that I am, I ended up speaking to an RAF guy on the street and he right. was working at the careers office. And, you know, <laughs> I had 45 minutes to wait for my bus <laughs> to, to get back home. So I ended up going in there um, and that's how I ended up joining the RAF. So when I was 20 years old, I ended up joining his air crew. So I was a load master. Yep. Um, and... When I started to talk to the guy, I realized that the, that the Yellow Sea King that I had watched for years coming down on Lifeboat, the etc., the guy had convinced me that that was a cool job to go for. And I was like, okay, yeah, actually, that, that is a cool job to go for. You know, fishermen or flying around in a helicopter and go to all these cool destinations. So that's what I've done. I ended up going to RAF Cranwell, which is the officer and aircrew selection, uh, so it's like the station where they train all the aircrew and officers. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that's when I was 20, uh, 20 years old. So I went down there, done my basic training, done my trade training, and that's what then took me into the REF. And that's really, as well as the coaching and sort of, let's call it basic psychological background and training and qualifications that I had, that's where it really started to, to take on a new level when I was, you know, I was almost running. I didn't realize it at the time, but when we were landing, I was doing um, like off the hook coaching sessions, review sessions, one-to-one -one development, etc., um, and then I ended up operationally serving in Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and Sierra Leone. And yeah. 
at that particular time there, I mean, hats off to the army girls and boys, mind. They were, you know, they were really in, in the front line. And I saw some stuff too, but from, from the stuff that I saw, what really got my interest was I've always been a, a people watcher. I love sitting yeah. back and, oh, well, why do they do this? Or are they aware? And a lot of the body language stuff that I do on YouTube as well helps me in my job to realize, okay, is somebody looking uncomfortable, but they're not saying, okay, why, why, the, you know, do they know that they're uncomfortable or they're scared to say what they're feeling? So in an operational area where you've got critical time frames to hit, I was really interested and blessed in a way that I had the exposure to look and think about why certain people reacted differently under the same conditions, if that makes sense, Blair? Yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, so you're sort of surrounded by all this, you know, very high impact, high demand in critical, very dangerous situations. Yeah. And some people would react like A, some people would react like B, and some people would react like C, and I'd, I'd look at this and I'd try different techniques with them because I was in charge of a team when we went there. So I was working on what was called the BC-10 at the time. Um, so imagine going on holiday, all of the seats taken out, all replaced with stretcher posts, and we would get the, the, the critical casualty teams, yeah. they would be bringing on people who were severely ill, wounded, trying to keep them alive until we took them back to Germany or somewhere in the UK, depending on their injuries. So that was like baptism by fire, where I was allowed, I was enabled, like the situation gave me the opportunity in a weird way to try out these techniques on A, myself, to see if I could handle these situations better because not everything I saw landed well with me. Not everything I saw, um, you know, made me happy. I was scared. I was fearful. I went through the full range of emotions. But then also with the team that I was leading, it allowed me to start really understanding different personality traits, different needs, different demands, different requirements. Yeah. and then, you know, that, that experiential learning of actually going out and trying it in real time and getting it right and getting it wrong and, and, and always learning, that sort of set me up where I got a real in-depth understanding as well as self-study and other qualifications about psychology, coaching, leadership, bringing teams together. But also the acceptance is that every single person thinks, feels and acts. And that is the one thread that, oh, sorry, that is a thread that connects us as human beings. It doesn't matter what industry you work in, you know, whereabouts you come from, what country, et cetera, et cetera, is that every single person thinks, feels, and acts in their own unique way. Now, there will be commonalities. Absolutely, there will be commonalities, but there's also big differences. But I learned, and that was the start of my relearning, that if you can help people to think, feel, and act better in their own way, then that empowers them to be a better version of themselves. That helps them to get more right first time. That helps them to be more in control of their thoughts and feelings. So I did that for about eight years in the RAF, come out, set up my own company. Being an air crew, you're immersed in human factors. You're immersed in crew resource management. And as well as all the self-studying, you know, other educational courses that I've done, I took this out into industry and I started training organizations like uh, Balfavidi, Rio Tinto, um, AMEC, Babcock, National Grid, uh, Seven Trent Water, a load of companies that I was so fortunate, so fortunate that I actually believed in what I was doing. Um, and that took me, you know, around the world up until about 2014, where I had done some really good work for Balfour B. Now, this was the guys and girls and the pilots. Uh, and at that particular time, I had a friend who was the director of safety, and we had become friends by then, really, really 
brilliant woman called Angela Barker, and she had started working um, for uh, Siemens Wind, as it was uh -huh. at the time. So you've got, you know, people working on pylons, as in they don't come to the office, they're in the middle of a field, they are totally remote workers, they've got micro environments going on. So really the management has got no clue about what's really going on inside. Mm. Although you've got pylons, you've got wind turbines, effectively it's exactly the same. Yeah, exactly the same. Apart from you've got onshore or offshore, on offshore, you've got an opportunity where as soon as they get on the boat, management have a re haven't really got a clue what's going on. And then yeah. you can get two or three turbine technicians just getting off on that turbine, shutting the door behind them, and they really have got a micro-environment going on there. So there was an opportunity to come along uh, and be the lead safety performance coach for, for Siemens Wind. I was contracted at the time, spent a few months working there. They seemed to really like what I do and the energy that I bring and the different angles that I brought, just about how to approach what we call safety. Uh, and I ended up being there for, for two and a half years. Um, so I was meant to be there for four months, but yeah, two and a half years later, I was there. So I went through that transition, lead safety and performance coach for, for Siemens Gamesa, and that was Northern Europe, Middle East, onshore and offshore. I think that's yeah. the right title that, that it, was. it was. It was probably the biggest title that I've ever had. Um, <laughs> but then there was an opportunity that come along to enable me to go out and, and again, set up my own business. Um, and that's what I'm doing now is in... I see me as that I'm, I've sort of set out my fruit and veg store and I'm selling what I firmly believe in. And some people will come by and they'll have a look and say, oh, Bruce, that's not for me. We, do, we, don't, we sort of don't get the thinking, feeling, acting. It looks nice, but it's not for us. Have a good day and I'll take my hat and I'll carry on. But then there'll be some people who really get how people think, feel and act. They'll see the Hulk in themselves. They'll understand that emotions drive behaviours. They'll understand that if we can help people to think, feel and act in a more controlled way, I'd be more more aware of, of the thoughts and feelings then you get better versions of themselves and I'll enjoy work with them because that's the fruit that I want to sell so this is where I am now been yeah. doing this for about a year and a half really loving the clients that I'm working with exploring experimenting you know t t taking different angles but it's all around accepting the fact that we're not just one we, we are not a robot you've got totally different variables of employees within an organization and I, 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 me personally, really loving the fact that they're open and curious enough to experiment with how can we get our employee, how can we support them, how can we empower them to become happy and get more right first time by being more in control of their thoughts and feelings. And that brings us up to here. And now I am here talking to Blair on the podcast. <laughs> so you mentioned the Hulk within there, Bruce. Let's yeah. explore that a little bit more. Tell us a bit about the theory behind that. Yeah, sure. So the Hulk, obviously... Uh, you know, the, the monkey, the chimp paradox, it, it, it's the same type of thing, I just call it the Hulk. And why I call it the Hulk is because the Hulk, most people recognize the Hulk. And from a visualization perspective, we get it's a person and then the anger and emotion comes out and, you know, it gets bigger and stronger. And I'm not saying anyone's clothes start popping off in the office or something like that, but we've all got the ability to lose emotional control. We've all got the ability to to lose ourselves in the moment. Um, and we need to accept that because we can never get rid of the hook. All right, we can never get rid of that defensiveness or that aggressiveness or, or that trigger. But what we can do is we can become more embracing of the fact that we have got a hook, that we do get defensive, that we do get angry, that we can become emotional or forgetful, whatever it may be. 
but by accepting the humanistic traits that we've got and not pretending that they don't exist, you know, trying to push them away, is that actually we become more in control of the Hulk. We'll, we start to pull the Hulk strings. So although the Hulk may present itself, and it does, and it wants to, is that we reduce the impact. We reduce the amount of time that the Hulk is present. Now that's fantastic, Blair, for a well-being perspective, from a mental health perspective, from a safety perspective, but also from an overall performance perspective. But that's the hope. That's one of the parts of the program that we deliver. Recognizing that I've got a hope, you've got a hope. And recognizing also that we can't do it as an individual. We've all got the capability to be lost in that moment, which is why we need that psychological safety within that team to be able to come around, put an arm around someone's shoulder, or point out in an empathic way, yeah. Your hook showing up. Is there a better way we can do this? So that's just a little bit. And that always goes down well with clients. You know, because sometimes I'll ask, do you recognize the hook in yourself? And I may get it, oh, well, you know, they, they don't want to. I say, okay, well, what about the person next to you? Oh, yeah, I, I recognize it in him. Absolutely, I recognize it in him. Yeah. Um, but again, it's about how you deliver that information. It's about, will they remember the hook? Absolutely. You know, is it nice? And again, what we're doing is enabling conversations here. Rather than saying, Blair, you're getting angry. Blair, do you think you're recognizing your hope coming out? It, it's just a totally more empathic way of enabling more collaborative conversations. But yeah, that's a little bit about the hope there, Blair. Brilliant, Bruce. Thank you. So you've obviously had quite a, a long journey in your health and safety career. Hmm. Can you tell us a bit about your biggest challenge in health and safety today? Yeah, sure. So my biggest challenge in health and safety would come around, if I, if I can say it, the acceptance. So we call it human error, all right? And when I say we, there's a phraseology that exists at the moment called human error. And by calling it error, what we're already doing, our conscious or subconscious biases, we're already apportioning blame, we're already saying they're wrong. Because to be forgetful. All right, to get things wrong, to get emotional, to press the wrong button, etc., etc. It's not necessarily error, it's being human. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's being human. And one of the things that I've tried to, to convey is that we can all get it wrong. Yeah, we can all get it wrong. Because often you'll understand this as a, as a safety professional, is that sometimes you'll get an incident that comes across your desk. And I say, okay, we'll take it to the management. The management will get a text message or we'll get some type of notification. Oh, why so-and-so done this? Well, the reason why you're getting the text message on your, you know, on your phone or it's good is because you're probably working in an office. Yeah? Mm -hmm. You're working behind a desk. The, the, the people who are having the incident haven't got that privilege of working behind a desk. So they're already more, you know... The, the likelihood of that occurring there, of course it's going to be higher than, than you because your work environments at a baseline level are already different. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it, it's getting that across about it's not human error, but actually it's being human. And yeah. when we start to work with the fact that we can, we've all got these human you know, behaviors that can be displayed at any time, depending on the situation, the environment, the triggers, what's going on externally or what's going on internally. Mm -hmm. We've all got those there. And I think that would be my biggest challenge is in when something occurs, trying to get somebody to walk five minutes in the person's shoes who it's occurred to in order to help you start balancing that story. Yeah, because I get it's going to affect your performance. I get it's going to affect your profitability. I get the HSC might get involved. I get all this. 
Yeah, but that's going to happen. But in order to be more balanced and factual and for you to control your hook, that was the biggest goal of me, is to help maybe walk through senior management or people who are investigating the incident. Let's just walk on five minutes through that person's shoes so yeah. we can maybe understand their environment first, so we can maybe hold our story, that reality that we are making up, to help us approach it in a more balanced and curious way than maybe is a bias-driven approach where we're already creating the end in blame. Yeah. I had a great coach that once told me, before you get angry or before you get worked up, or even if you're trying to analyse something, take yourself out of the position and put yourself in the other person's position. Think yeah. about what they're thinking, what they're feeling, and why they've reacted in the way that they have. Have a think about that before you come up with the answer and go and speak to them, and then practice the conversation before you go and speak to them. So I'll have that... 10 minutes in the mirror in the morning, if I know I'm going to have a big meeting, I'll stand and look at myself and rehearse what I'm going to say and how I'm going to interact and how I'm going to position myself in the room yeah, to yeah, go out sure. and that message. It is, absolutely. And, and I think there, it, you know, if, if, it, if it empowers you, if it supports you to have the best conversation, then we really should keep doing that. And I call it putting on another set of glasses. It's yeah. simple as that, another set of glasses. So when you get the information, or this is what I, and remember, we can't not judge, all right? And again, we speak about it. Let's actually be authentic here, Blair, all right? Is that we can't not judge. We hear the saying, don't judge a book by a cover. All right, don't judge a book by its cover. I've never heard so much waffle in all my life. I judge everybody I meet in a heartbeat, in a human heartbeat, yeah. yeah? Everybody does. Everybody does. We can't yeah. not do it. Yeah, we can't not do it. We are programmed. Yeah, we are programmed to make split decisions. Heuristic bias comes into it. Lots of, you know, lots of stuff like that. But where we have got that ability, where we have got that ability, is to become aware of our thoughts, is to become aware of what we are thinking, to then challenge them, to then say, okay, what other choices have I got? I'm aware of that narrative I'm creating. And that's what I call putting another pair of glasses on. Put that other pair of glasses on is if you are the person you're now thinking about, What's going on in their world? What could it, and again, this is just made up, but by asking what's going on in their world, what could they be thinking? What pressures are they facing? You know, let's actually think about their characteristics, their genetic makeup, et cetera, et cetera. What it helps you to do is just balance that seesaw a little bit more so you're more factual, more open, more curious when you approach that situation rather than going in and having the final chapter already written down there, you know? Yeah, one of the most successful people that I've seen that's done something like that is a guy that I knew, and he used to be the opposite of everyone else. So he used to watch all of these financial gurus like Grant Cardone and, oh, yeah. and all these kind of guys speaking and talking about all the great stuff that they were doing and all the money that they were making. Tony Robbins was another one that he used to watch. And he used to go away and Google for hours and do research on the flaws in their argument and where they were getting it wrong to yeah. try and disprove them. But he always worked on the mindset of, well, no, there's something not quite right here. Why are they so great at it? I need to really unpick that and analyse yeah, yeah, yeah. it get to the bottom of it. And it was just a totally <laughs> different way of thinking. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, absolutely. I think, you know, when you look at it from... Um, and th that has got some benefits to it. When you look at like neurodiversity and using different capabilities or um, cerebral capacities in order to do different jobs, yeah. you know, th there's actually, a, 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 if everybody was optimistic, 
you've probably missed some gaping holes and there's some research and I, I can't remember the exact research being done but that you know there's a few bits of research um, that suggest that it's always good to have someone who's more disposed to like a depressive nature within the team because they will look at it why it will go wrong they will yeah. look at what will go wrong with it why it won't work and you absolutely need that in there that you know you're talking about yeah. You absolutely need someone to look at that angle as well as why it will work in there. So that's the beauty of building a team as well, Blair. Yeah, totally, totally. So you've worked with some really impressive teams over the past couple of years as well. What's been your favourite one that you've worked with, Bruce, or what favourite business project that you've worked on? Do you know what? And I'm not just going to say this because my clients will probably be uh, probably watching it. <laughs> Is that I generally, if I've got an opportunity to work with people, now I've worked from CEOs all the way across to people putting drains in, etc. is that I just like that human-to-human -human connection. Regardless, remember, thinking, feeling, acting, the premise that I deliver on, the hope, the ladder that I could talk about. Every single person has got those five behaviors, those five things that I talk about, that I try to expose. So whether you're a CEO of a, you know, a billion-pound company or whether you're across the other side and you're digging holes in the field, they will think, they will feel, they will act. They've yep. got a hulk with inside them. They've got a ladder, fact or fiction ladder as we call it here, that will take some data, they'll add some emotion on, the ladder belief will turn it around, they'll create a reality. And that's the benefit that I get with my job is that that's why I can walk into any industry. I was having a chat with one of the boxing coaches that I work with. And he's like, oh, well, you know, you psychologist, etc." I said, well, you know, <laughs> just sort of calm down on the phraseology there. <laughs> but you don't understand boxing. I don't have to understand boxing. I'm not trying to teach someone, don't get this wrong. I love boxing. I've already alluded to the fact that I wasn't very good at it. But yeah. I'll do, I do love the sport of boxing. But I don't have to know boxing. I don't have to know turbines. I don't have to know nuclear sites. I don't have to know, you know, pylons. What I do know is people. And people are people all over the globe. And what, what my work focuses on is the thinking, the feeling, and the acting. And that's why, you know, I, I couldn't say, oh, the team one was really great, or team two was great, or team three was fantastic. It's that every single person that I've come across, every single person loves finding out about how they think, feel, and act, because it's interesting because it's about them. I'm not yep. coming in to talk about me. I'm saying, do you know you, you, know, you think these ways because of X, Y, and Z? And this, how affects, you know, this impacts how you feel. And put those two together, this impacts how you behave. And, oh, yeah, I recognize this, or I've done this, or three years ago I've done that. Um, so for me, I, I couldn't see it as a specific team that I enjoy, just a team of people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that's brilliant, Bruce. So you've progressed pretty far in your career. You've now got your own business. Where do you see yourself progressing to in the future? What's next for Bruce? Well, I've got a mission. So I've got, if I can tell a little bit about my background going just a little bit backwards here, yep. is that I've got three stepchildren and two children of my own. Mm -hmm. And my stepchildren's dad and my now wife, uh, a number of years ago, were involved in an incident where they were traveling up the A1 towards Berwick uh, and coming towards them, they had a, a lorry driver uh, from, from Holland. Mm -hmm. And he pulled out when he shouldn't have done uh, behind a mobile crane. And when he pulled out, Alan and Kelly went straight into him. So this is the kid's dad and my now wife. Alan was killed on impact. Um, and Kelly, my wife, she suffered brain injury, skull fracture, six broken vertebrae, uh, a ruptured spleen, uh, broken pelvis, severe internal bleeding. And the kids were, were, were told 
uh, and so I do a lot of public speaking. And this is like sort of a little bit. Of, I'm, I'm just doing a sort of crazy version of, of the presentation that I give. Mm -hmm. But the, the bit that even now I'm about to say, I can feel my globus and I can feel my throat tightening here because it, it really impacts me now. I've spoken about this all over the world thousands of times, but when I speak about it, I still feel that emotion, Blair. Is that the kids were told because of the severity of the situation, the, the police liaison officer, the headmaster, they're at school. Uh, Jack was nine, John was 10, uh, Sophie was 12. We got them into the got them into the corner uh, at lunchtime and said, look, there's been an accident, your dad's been killed, um, your mum, we don't think she's going to make it either. We've got to get you to hospital. Um, because it's essentially, they were trying to get the kids to hospital so they could say goodbye to their mum, because they, they obviously their dad, uh, Alan, had been killed on impact. Um, so I see the output of when somebody makes an error. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of public speakers that, and I know this from my job as lead safety performance coach within Siemens and, and Siemens Gamesa, they'll come and they'll tell their story. And I look at it and I think, and what? I, it's powerful. I hear you. It, it's, tra it's, it's tragic what's actually happened to them. But then like, where's the tools and techniques? Where's the data that I can actually do something to really try and prevent that occurring? And what me and Kelly and the kids have talked about is that the authentic truth, Blair, the authentic truth, mm -hmm. is it could be easy to throw boulders and hate, you know, let's just call yeah. it like it is, towards that driver. Mm -hmm. But when you put on the different set of glasses and you look at it from his perspective, when you when I actually come out and caught me and the guy went to jail, um, he had got up late. He didn't want to tell his boss. He was going on holiday the next day. His boss was then ringing to, to, to I think it was, so he had a schedule, a schedule of loads that he was picking up that was yeah. already round packed. And his boss wanted to fit in an extra load, but he was already running late. So he's like, I don't want to tell my boss and now I'm rushing and I'm going on holiday the next day. His wife thought that he was going to be late. So he was trying to pacify her. And then he got stuck in traffic on the A1, just past Edinburgh. So yeah. you put all this together yeah, you put all this together, his Hulk was firing. Yeah. He wasn't in control of that situation. That that environmental situation, that internal narrative, that yeah. Hulk was pulling the strings of that particular driver. Now, does that make him evil? No. Does that make him, you know, a sort of a, a monster? No. What it does is it makes him human. And again, me and the kids and Kelly have had loads of chat. Like, don't get us wrong, it's been horrific, the impact that's played out with Kelly, you know, with her injuries and then trying to obviously bring up three kids as well. Yeah. So she's lost her husband. She's got near fatal injuries that she's trying to rehab with. And then three young children have lost their dad. But, but we put that in a pot and that's here. And that's tragic and that's horrible. And, it, and it's, it's been so impactful, the amount of stuff that they've gone through as a family. But then across here, you've also got a human who was impacted by pressure, by narrative. His mental health wasn't brilliant at the at the time. You know, he ended up going to jail. He ended up getting divorced. From anecdotal evidence, because it was a local uh, jail where he was initially, he tried to take his own life in that first few weeks um, before he, he went to his main, main jail, if I can call it that. So my mission, if you will, is that, I haven't met anybody. Now, I'm an enthusiastic guy. And yeah, I've got a whole background in psychology and coaching and 
performance and everything like this. But there's nobody that I've met globally, globally, Blair, who can dent my enthusiasm that I believe everybody through awareness, through talking, through authenticity, through embracing human behaviors and what we are, not error, it's, it, it, it's what we are. If we recognize the Hulk when the Hulk starts to appear, if we recognize our ladder when we start telling ourselves story and getting into that zone, then we're more likely to be able to move back from it. So again, what, you know, what do I see myself doing in the future? I've got three kids who I see every day who haven't got their dad. And I'm in such a privileged position, if I can call it that, that I've got the skill, the enthusiasm, the drive, and the ability to go out there and talk about just some bit, what, what could be seen as basic stuff mm-hmm. in the hope that someone else doesn't lose their dad or their mother or their sons because they weren't in control of their hope. So that, that, that's me. That's what I'm doing. I've got, I've, I've got a legacy of a dad who is no longer here, and I've got three stepchildren looking at me, who I love, and I've been in their life for years now, yeah. But I know, I believe, I don't know, it's an assumption on my part. But if that driver, if that human, if that person like you or I had a bit more awareness to recognize that hope was creeping up on him at that time and he was starting to become irrational, he was starting to become aggressive, you know, with his driving and taking risks, etc. I, I, I just maybe I just hope he would have had the chance to be able to take that foot off the accelerator. To, to, to plan it more logically, to be more in control of his environment. So that's me. That's where I see myself doing what I'm doing now because I know, I know, and from working with organizations and people, you know, some, some ladies and gentlemen who are coming to the end of their career. So you know what, Bruce, if I knew this 30 years ago, I'm not just talking about work here. I would have had a better life. Yeah. So that's me. That, that's the feedback that really drives and, and, and gives me a little smile inside, Blair. That's brilliant, Bruce, and that's such a powerful driver inside as well to keep you pushing all the time, to keep delivering that message. Just to move on a little bit, I'm going to ask you now about what advice you would give to someone starting out in health and safety today, because there's obviously a lot of different schools of thought on health and safety and industry. Let's talk about about what Bruce would advise people to do getting involved in health and safety today. Sure. Well... For me, I would advise what I believe in. I would advise what I'm enthusiastic about. And what that would be is that never forget what you're trying to do, at least from my perspective, is you're trying to engage with people. Mm-hmm. You need to get out there. You need to understand people. Yeah, there's, there's, there's different, you know, structures and policies and rules you can make up. But we're not, you know, we're not black and white. We're not one or two. Is that we've got loads of different characteristics, capabilities, thought patterns, ways of doing things, depending on the time we get up, the, you know, the time of day, what we've had for breakfast. Oh, it's such a grey area. There's a load of grey area, but that's the area that I like to dance in. You know, actually get used to having people skills, to to be able to go and have a conversation, to you know, to, to actually have the confidence to go and say, tell me more about this. What's going on in your world? Or, you know, tell me a bit from, from, from your perspective. Because we can read the books and we can come up with the regulations and everything that I'm talking about that you'll recognize as well. We can all do that. But at the end of the day, what we've got is a human being with a head and a heart who thinks, feels, and acts, who's got a hook, who's got a ladder, who put that all together. You've got, a, you know, a, a variable type input, a, um, an emotional type reaction 
that can sometimes go off a tangent. And I know two and two should equal four, but sometimes it equals 64. Sometimes it'll equal 92 because of the nature of human beings. So I would say invest some time in learning about humans. Invest some time in learning about behaviors, emotions. Look at yourself. Yeah. You know, learn how you react. Learn how you learn. Learn how you make it defensive or etc. All these behaviors. So you can now have this space to be able to open up. To It's what I call creating a space around the campfire. So yeah. if I'm talking to a thousand people or I'm talking to one person, in my head I'm seeing this little cozy campfire. This little cozy campfire that I'm coming to them. I'm saying, tell me your story. Tell me what's going on in your world. Yeah. You know, tell me you know, the things that I'm unaware of that you're thinking about that's influencing you. But I'm going to sit here on this cozy campfire and I'm going to you know, let you tell my story. And I think we could all benefit from maybe improving our people's skills. Because yeah. fundamentally, that's the thing. That's the bit. That's the object. That, you know, that's the, our, our focus tends to be around about people. And yeah, we can do the numbers and the spreadsheets and all this type of stuff. But ultimately, you've got to go out there and engage with people and speak with people and be comfortable with people. Um, that, you know, the, the amount of people that I find, and that's where I've generally been used in, in organizations, not just a, you know, as a consultant, but as an internal employee, there are the senior leaders who actually aren't very comfortable with people or who yeah. don't get people. They're brilliant yeah. with numbers, absolutely brilliant with numbers, which is yeah. why, you know, from a neurodiversification perspective, that's probably why they're in the role that they do. But what do you mean I've got to go and have a conversation with them, Bruce? Well, you go, oh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm happy behind my keyboard here. And again, that's okay. It's okay to be more comfortable behind that, but just be aware that there could be a gap there. So I would say somebody coming into the safety profession, and remember, safety, in my opinion, just like leadership. In fact, Blair, I, 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 why not try you here? All right, why not? I'm just going to try a little experiment okay, with you. Okay, live experiment. Right? Let's go, Bruce. Let's go. Right, okay, so... Now, again, this is just my opinion. I'm not after anybody agreeing or disagreeing. But from a people-based perspective, I say to people, does safety exist? Yeah, from a people-based perspective, does safety exist? What would you say to that, Blair? And again, maybe I'm putting you on the spot, and I make no apologies for that, Blair. It's an invisible force. We can't hold it up in a glass and say, this is safety. Look, we're spilling some out here. It doesn't exist. It's a perception of the mind and people's perception, how they've grew up, how they've been educated, their perception of what risk is. So it's not a physical thing that we can hold in our hand, it's a mental thing. Absolutely. And that's where it comes to, it's a label, all right? So I define it as a label. So mm -hmm. whether, you know, again, if we dilute it all the way down, thinking, feeling, and acting. Yep. So if Bruce pushes the button or doesn't push the red button, we will call him safe or unsafe. But that's just the label that we're given his human performance. Cognitive yep. thoughts, hormonal reactions, muscular output. Did mm -hmm. he press the button or not? So safety, is that person safe or not? It's just a label that we then give them. A bit like leadership. I couldn't get a, a bottle and sorry, Blair, go and put a bit of leadership in there. Yep. It's all about thinking, feeling and acting. And we will judge people on the action, on the muscular output. But where it starts is way back at the thought, that inner voice. Conscious or subconscious, are we aware of it or are we not aware of it? But then that drives a feeling, that drives a hormonal regulation. Put those two together and then we get the output. Yeah, then we get the output. So I think... That really but, resonates with me, Bruce. Really it, resonates it, it, it's with me. true and that's one thing yeah. 
that I think would be beneficial to you know communicate wider is that when you're talking about safety, tell me a little bit more about what you mean by safety. Tell yeah. me, can you go and put it in a jar? Because yeah. again, through having these helpful, empathic, supportive conversations to under, start understand some basic levels of psychology and even coaching, what we're talking about, the labels that we're offering. Yeah. There can be some magic to be had, real magic, Blair, to be had, where you start bringing people together. And when you start bringing people together around that campfire, ho oh, oh, now, ho, now we're cooking on gas, literally. Yeah, one of the best coaches that I've had across my career told me that when you start out in safety, you start to think about, oh, if we do this, we'll be a little bit safer. If we get the guys to act like this, they'll be a little bit safer. But what you don't realise when you're first starting out in your career is safety is just good business. If you're good at the business that you're in and you start to develop the systems that help the business perform, good safety will come at the back of that and it will really start to join on to that. The other lesson that I learned from him was people will remember some of what you say, a little bit of what you do, but they'll always remember oh, how you make them feel. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So yeah. that really resonates with me and that, that feeds into that, definitely. Yeah, how you make them feel. And that there, how you make people feel, will show up, will absolutely show up where that, that hook, if, if, if somebody doesn't say something to you, Blair, it doesn't mean they don't feel it. Yeah. What you can have, and again, that's why we try to encourage through you know, the sort of cube that we've got, the four behaviours that were going on when things go well. Uh, again, that was a different angle that I took on safety. But if people are feeling that frustration inside, like me and you can be having a conversation. Yeah. You're unhappy, but you don't tell me you're unhappy. Or I keep doing something that makes you get angry or frustrated and I do it again, but I, I'm not aware because you haven't had that psychological safety or you don't feel it. You've got to say, Bruce, are you aware you're doing this and this is how it's making me feel? Then that builds up and builds up and builds up to the yeah. point where I, when you're at the end of your tether, boom, the Hulk lets rip. Yeah, the Hulk lets rip. But if we're more in tune with how we're feeling and we can offer that straight away, then wouldn't it be better to have those conversations in a nice calm way where we feel like we've got that psychological safety to offer how we feel, but also that active listening as well to encourage that collaborative conversation because then you get happier people who definitely get more right first time because there's more learning, there's more backwards and forwards going on in a supportive way, in a solution focused way, rather than trying to apportion blame or just looking after the individual self blame Yeah. Totally, totally. It goes back to the old reciprocity thing as well, doesn't it? I did oh, yeah. on the show a few weeks ago talking about this and he spoke about the skills of justice. Yeah. The guys get aggrieved by the site supervisor and they wait for the opportune moment to yeah. pay back that justice scale. Yeah. They'll wait to the next safety meeting and they'll sit at the back and they'll say, this is rubbish, I don't want to be here. You're talking mince, and the message just goes down and down and down. One of the best things I ever saw Eddie do, and this was absolutely fantastic, was he walked into a room of people, and they were all sitting, and you could see all the hecklers at the back. The spirits were down in the room. The company were going through a lot of changes. I won't mention who the company was. But the company was going through a lot of changes, and the spirits were quite down. And he saw all these guys, and he had these flip charts up at the front, and he was going to speak. And he walked in and he said to a couple of people organising the meeting, get those flip charts and put them in the back of the room. So they start taking the flip charts all the way up to the back of the room and turn them round. And 
how the people are all sitting still facing the opposite way and going, oh, this is rubbish, totally unorganised. I wish they'd hurry up. And they turn round and all the seats turn round. And Eddie walks in and he's at the front and he says, that's better. I like to have all the heckles at the front. Where I can see them. <laughs> and it was absolutely brilliant. It totally yeah. diffused the situation. Yeah. 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 I mean, to be fair, what one of the best techniques that I've used, and I've been in some organisations where redundancy has been on the cards, um, they're going through consultation, etc. Um, and they've brought me in as part of the process to try to, again, if, if people are being made redundant, if there's a chance of consultation, how people are thinking, feeling and acting can be very different and, and, and they need support in that particular time, Blair, you know? Yep. What I've always found is that if you go in any situation, and I've been in some, <laughs> how can I call it, situations where other people didn't want to go into, um, you know, with the individuals that were there at the particular time, that, you know, that they didn't want to be there, they didn't see the point of it, or etc. Or, or they might have been going through some like other situation, like I've just mentioned there. I've never found a situation where if I've went into somewhere and just spent 10 minutes saying, oh, come on, tell us your story. No, no, I don't want, no, come on, tell us, your, well, this is crap, or that's crap, all right, tell us a bit more. Just that five minutes of saying, tell me your story, and being generally interested in it. Yeah. In an instant, it changes, it changes, changes totally, positively changes. The dynamic in the room and i've been in lots of different situations with lots of different employees and you know although the atmosphere may be negative for whatever reason pull up a chair come on then. i'm interested i'm here before we start any of this tell me your story honestly around that campfire if it, you know if people take one thing away from this podcast is that think okay am i creating that campfire feeling nice and cozy the fire's crackling and I'm just listening and allowing people to tell me their story, to tell me their narrative. Because when people feel heard, they're more likely to connect with you as well, Blair, you know? Yeah, totally, totally. Um, so just to move on again a little bit, Bruce, tell us a bit more about the services that you offer to businesses, how you go about it, how do you get involved, how do you decide who you're going to work with? Well, again, people usually come to me because, you know, via word of mouth. Mm-hmm. That I've got a certain way of doing things, and again, people will like it, or people don't like it, or people can see the value in it. And again, it, it, it tends to be now where, uh, it's especially now, I've always believed in what people have called mel- mel- sorry, mental health or well-being. You know, I've always believed in yep. stuff like that. But I call it firing on all cylinders. Mental health and well-being in some organisations, and again, I get why. It can be seen as like an additional thing, or an add-on, or a bolt-on. Um, up, up until recently, never really been on the cards as much as it is now. But definitely over the past maybe three years, maybe a little bit more, it's become more important, it's become more palatable, it's become more fashionable, if you will, mm-hmm. your mental health first data, all this type of stuff. But for me, it's always been about helping somebody to create the environment, different ingredients, where the best version of them shows up, where they can fire on all cylinders, yeah, when they can fire on all cylinders. And what we do essentially is we work with organizations. So over six years, again, slightly different, is that I investigated, now wait for this, because it's a bit of a shock horror one yeah, Blair, right? Why mm-hmm. things went well, yeah, why things went well. So not when they had an incident, not when they had an accident. Most organizations, they have an accident, all right, there'll be an incident investigation team formed. There may be a stop work depending on the severity of the incident. Right, what went wrong? Who's to blame, etc., etc. Yeah, 
that's generally, or maybe it's up until a few years ago, how, you know, how it went, what caused it, etc. But if something went well, did you hear about it? Was there a stop work? Was there an investigation form to say, hey, guys and girls, tell me what was going on here so we can amplify it, so we can do more of that? Generally not. And that's what I noticed when I had my first organization, when I was working with these big blue chips. I would go in very subjective, very call-based and say, oh, how were you thinking? How were you feeling? What was going on? What, what behaviors was actually going on yep. in order for that project to come in on time? In order for it to be reduction in incidents or on budget or everybody was happy. This yeah. type of stuff is what me and my team investigated over a six-year period on a number of projects. And that's what we come up. The four behaviors. Now, the four behaviors is what we identified as behavioral trends that could be amplified by other people. And they make sense. But one of the biggest things that we identified was, well, have people actually spent some time looking at what makes them tick? What things do I need to place around me? What structure do I need to create? How do I need to do? What do I need to do more of? What do I need to do less of in order for the best version of me to show up? And quite often people haven't thought about that. You know, people haven't thought about, well, I know what I focus on when it goes wrong. Yeah. But you see when the best version of me is present, when I'm in full flow, when I'm firing on all cylinders, what's actually going on? So that's what we help people do to actually create something. So our behaviors offer without fear. Having that psychological, it's not about being right or wrong. It's about saying, this is how I'm feeling. Yeah, this is how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. Here are others. Again, very simple, active listening, but also hear the stories that you're telling yourself. That inner voice, that inner critic, that hook. Become aware of it. Yeah, so offer without fear, psychological safety, and then the ability to also listen to your own thoughts as well as listening to other people whilst controlling your hope. And you need to practice this, you know, to get less defensive, yeah. to allow people to, to continue. Um, deliver thanks. Now, people, when we talk about deliver thanks, they often think about, well, it's the team. Well, I, I need to thank other people. I go, two seconds. That joy starts with you. In fact, yep. Blair, I'll ask you, in the past 12 months, how many times have you stopped and reflected to look at all the effort that you've put in, all the yep. hard work that you've done? Yeah. Very rarely, you know, very rarely do we not think, do you know what? Now I'm not talking about going in front of a mirror and roaring like a lion and saying, ah, oh, I'm the man. But, yeah. You know, if that works for you, so be it, so be it. But very rarely do we actually just stop and praise ourselves and reflect and enjoy and embrace the hard work that we put in because we're on that hamster wheel, the next thing. But then it is also about delivering thanks to other people because that yeah. does something for the heart. And then the last one is reflect honestly getting around that campfire, yeah, utilizing those behaviors of listening, speaking, being authentic, being collaborative, embracing the human traits that we've all got so that we can improve moving forward, but we can also appreciate what's also went well. So that's what we do with organizations, but also like we're doing some stuff for the NHS at the moment. When you hear, again, mental health is about speak up or what, why didn't you offer this? Well, often the reason why people don't speak up there is that they don't feel like they can. Yeah. They haven't got that psychological safety. So with the clients that we work with, as you'll see people like shaking this cube at the boss, let's call it the boss. Now the boss, she or he may be, you know, at the front of the room, but by shaking this cube, it's almost like the, the white flag's going up. Boss, I, I, is it okay if I can ask you this question? Well, it is because I've got the cube and there's nothing you can do about it. So it's a permission giver. 
Yeah, it's yeah. permission giver. It's br I didn't even intend it to do that. I can't even claim the credit for that. But yeah. you see thousands of people way over this is here. I need to speak up and and you need to listen as well. But also it's you know it's yellow and black for a reason. It's designed, as we were saying before, that beautiful nudge that you were talking about with the Piper Alpha. Yeah. Designed to sit on people's desks. Because we do forget, we do get caught up in the moment. And the reason why it's yellow and black is it, it, it's designed to catch your eye. It's designed every now and again, just so you look at it. And again, it's a cube, you can play with it. it you're, you're reminding it. When you're playing with it, other people are being reminded because they're seeing the, uh, the sort of cube turning. But all of that, all of that just creates an environment where people are aware of the ingredients, the factors, the things that they need to surround themselves with in order to be the best version of them. And then by doing that, you're actually amplifying the good stuff present when things go well, happier people getting more right first time, firing all cylinders because they're more in control of how they're thinking and feeling blessed. That's brilliant, Bruce. That's really interesting. It's really groundbreaking as well. How do people get in touch with you if they want to get in touch with you and work with your organisation or bring you in to do some coaching with their staff? Sure, again, so you can connect me, Bruce, at huddleculture.com or connect with me on LinkedIn, just Bruce Durham, you'll find us there. Um, or send us smoke signals, a pigeon, however you want to communicate with us. I'm used to it all here in Newcastle, Blair. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got quite a popular YouTube channel as well that we've not mentioned to this point, Bruce. Yeah, yeah. Tell us a bit about that. <laughs> so the YouTube's going well. So one of the things, again, I've always been interested in is body language. Yep. For me, now the thing on YouTube is everybody's interested in are they lying or not. That tends to be the sort of, you know, the, uh, the sort of, the, the anchor why people want to come. But actually, yep. for me, it's never been around about why people are lying. It's about trying to help other people mm -hmm. to build a platform of psychological safety. So if I'm coaching somebody or, you know, if I've been involved in accident investigation, etc. And in fact, you know, for the viewers, if you've been involved in an investigation or even play yourself, position yourself yep. here, you'll go in and you'll ask certain questions based on the output of your investigation you may decide to implement certain measures that cost money, yeah, mm -hmm. based on the information, well, this went wrong, or i done this, or i done that. Now, it sometimes can be very hard to get down to the exact thing of what went wrong in order to try and fix it. But what can be really helpful is if you're in tune with people and you're noticing when you're asking a question, maybe somebody's doing something. It's not for me, it's not about like, are they lying? Because you can't tell from body language if somebody's lying or not. All right, you can't. What you can tell if someone's comfortable or uncomfortable. And for me, the benefit has been a safety professional or a leader or a manager. Anything where, you know, you're trying to get better your connection with people is if they look uncomfortable. It's not like, oh, like they look if they're lying, which is where a lot of people are conditioned to look from. Oh, they're lying. It's like, well, if their body language doesn't tie up with what they're saying, I always ask myself, well, why do they feel that they cannot tell me what's going on inside their head? Mm -hmm. I always reflect on me so that glasses is firmly looking at me. Am I providing that psychological safety so that can, you know, they can offer that? Can I improve my questioning technique? Can I improve that emotional baseline, that platform that I'm trying to deliver? And for me, you know, over 20 years of sitting in front of thousands, I've coached thousands of people. You know, you know, you sort of notice what's called universal body language tells that generally everybody does or idiosyncratic, which is down to the individual that, you know, Blair might do this or Blair might do that. But you notice this by actually just being in front of thousands of people for hours on end, 
you know, tens of thousands of hours I've been in front of people, teams and individuals, coaching, yeah. etc. And just noticed this body language. So I thought, okay, I'm going to go on to YouTube and I'm going to do some stuff uh, about mental health, well-being, self-development, because that's what I was interested in. And mm -hmm. again, you know, talking about the hope, think, feel and act. But then what I noticed is when, you know, I had two, sub two, two subscribers. One was my mum, the other one was my mum. <laughs> They're saying they were two different accounts. I thought, well, you know, nobody's watching these here. So I'd done some investigation and I thought, okay, I'm going to do a body language video. So a lot of the coaching training that I do within the Optiminds program that we offer within Huddle Culture, it includes body language because if you're not in tune with either the words or the body language, you know, those signals that people are giving mm -hmm. up, you could be missing a whole host of information that could help you connect better and help you get more right first time. So there was this big YouTube event, there was two YouTube boxers and they were on stage at a press conference. So I just done, um, and you could tell it was my, you know, my very first one because I was like, there's a camera here and there's some lights here and I'm trying to, like, I didn't know how to talk to the camera. Um, but it just happened that there was a lot of people who were searching for these two particular fighters at that time because they were big YouTube stars. So the platform that I was on is where they're from. And then I, I sort of woke up one morning and usually I would get like, you know, 12 views or something. <laughs> to be fair, which was just me sort of watching and re-watching my video again, you know? But then it went to like 1,000 and then 5,000 and it kept going up and up and up until it got to about like 380,000. Mm -hmm. And then my subscribers started growing up and up and up as well. Um, so I thought, oh, there's, you know, there is something here. So I started sharing more. And again, it's just my opinion around about body language and what I've implemented and what I've trained other people in for the past 20 years. And people were, oh, you know, they're interested, but I'll do more of this. I was like a dog with a bone, yeah, you know, I'm getting some views. But that's really what I'm trying to do. You know, I've been all over on YouTube and other like, big YouTubers' channels. I've got, you know, big boxers, you know, follow me on Instagram and, you know, like world champions. It's fantastic, absolutely fantastic. Trainers coming to me. I was on Sky Sports um, working with a trainer, but... It's all around promoting mental health, firing on all cylinders, thinking, feeling, and acting. And that's really what I'm trying to do with my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. It's getting to a certain stage where I've got enough viewers that I can actually go back to what I'm talking about and have a reasonable amount of views on there. Um, and what, what, you know, what I'm passionate about is helping people think, feel, and act. And again, some of the, you know, so I, from my YouTube stuff, I went into coaching boxers, people that you might see on TV, but it always dilutes into, I'm helping you think, feel, and act. That's every single thing what it comes down to, is I'm trying to help that person to optimize their own performance by thinking, feeling, acting in a little bit better way that helps them become a better version of themselves. But YouTube's definitely interesting, obviously, yourself getting into the podcast, you know, definitely. which is what we're doing. It's, it's, like a, it's, it's like a new universe, isn't it, Blair? Yeah, oh, totally. It's let me talk to some really interesting people, I just put the first video out there. I didn't know who I would get to watch it or if anyone would watch it at all. It's started to make a little bit of traction now. I'm getting people coming back as repeat viewers and things like that. So it's really interesting. It's been a, a great experience for me and I hope to keep going with it. We yeah, were talking earlier man. before we came on camera that I'm thinking about converting my garage into a podcast studio just yeah. to really ramp it up and start getting a little bit more professional with it. But it's yeah, been great. Absolutely. And you don't need a lot to get started. I'm working out a conservatory with a laptop <laughs> and a, a conference call speaker. And away you go. And yeah. away you go. 
totally, totally. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Bruce. It's really appreciated. On behalf of the Safer Than Your Average podcast viewers, it's been fantastic. I'm sure this will be a, a well-watched video. Thanks for your time. No, thank you very much, sir. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, hope the podcast goes from strength to strength, player. If I can do anything else, just get in contact, buddy. Much appreciated. Cheers, Bruce. No problem. This podcast is sponsored by Inside Out Group, the specialists in high-risk and challenging filming and time-lapse, covering health and safety videos for rail, construction, and infrastructure projects nationwide.